Hi, my name is Nick Thompson and I run holisticvet.co.uk. We're based near Bath in England. I'm Dr. Brendan Clark. I'm based at Towerwood Vets in West Yorkshire. And my name's Dr. Connor Brady, the non-vet of the gang from dogsbirth.ie. And together we are Raw Pet Medics. <laughs> We are here. We are very excited. Why do why do um, people doing podcasts always say they're very excited when they? Yeah, <laughs> is, is, is that the only word they can use. Yeah. We are we are we are we're stimulated and, yeah. and scintillated with the fact we have the uh, the, the, the the founder of uh, the Sustainable Food Trust, Patrick Holden, is with us this evening. Uh, Patrick, um, are you there? Come to us. Come on, there he is. There he is. Hey. Great stuff. See, it works. Wonderful. <laughs> Technology, finally. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, absolutely great. We've introduced ourselves very, very briefly to you. Our, our many lovely uh, followers uh, know who we are. Can you give us a, a brief introduction to who you are so that so that we can place you uh, in the constellation of science, of agriculture, of uh, contemporary um, food. Okay, well, I'm part of the constellation of humanity, and uh, I grew up in London uh, in the 50s, well, in and around London, 50s and 60s. My dad was the doctor, actually a psychoanalyst, a child psychiatrist, uh, he, we, when he was training as a doctor, moved around a lot. And for some reason, which I think it might be connected with epigenetic inheritance from my grandfather, I became very interested in keeping animals as pets. So I had an absolute menagerie when I was young. I mean, I had various childhood holidays in wild places, the Hebridean Islands and on farms. But basically at home, which was Peckham in London and then North London, Barnet, I, I built ponds and watched frogs and newts and had a minor bird and a bred rabbits and mice, budgies. You know, I was just really always interested in animals. And I was going to study ethology at university because I read Conrad Lorenz and all those kind of annual behaviour books. But then I turned on, tuned in and dropped out as one did in the late 60s and completely flunked out on university. I went to the University of Life and my dad was then posted out to Palo Alto in the San Francisco Bay Area. He was a visiting professor at Stanford. And I went out and joined the family. And that was even more extraordinary experience at that time, being in the San Francisco Bay Area. So I came back determined to sort of get back to the land and set up a, you know, a community farm. Uh, so gathered a few friends around who were interested in that kind of thing and read the Communes magazine, which was very sort of prevalent at that time. And that's what we did. We bought a farm, got back to the land, bought a dairy herd. And actually, I did prepare a bit. I studied biodynamic agriculture at a college in Sussex. And I worked oh, wow. on quite an intensive dairy farm for a year. But I learned by doing. Right from the start, I drank the Kool-Aid. I sort of thought that you should farm in harmony with nature. And I was interested in 
I think it dawned on me that health was not the absence of disease. It was something much more mysterious and positive than that. I think that we have, you know, a national health service, which would be much better named the National Disease Treatment Service. And I became interested in the idea of positive health. And so I guess that's the reason why you probably asked me to have this conversation with you. You know, I, I worked in the Soil Association for 20, 20, 25 years, and then I left that, set up Sustainable Food Trust. And meanwhile, I've been, you know, doing my, that's my, been my day job, but I have been carrying on on the farm milking cows, basically, and looking after all the animals on our farm. We have a dairy herd of about 80 Ayrshire cows. We turn nearly all the milk into cheese on the farm. Uh, raw milk cheese, when we're not closed down with TV, that's the discussion. Oh, no, this is, is, you're, this, you're very interested here. Do you want to jump in? What, what does the UK Soil Association do with itself? What did it do before you joined, and how did you leave it? What was it doing? Well, that's a great question, because... Um, I have to go back in history about 100 years to answer that question properly. At the beginning of the 20th century, a man called Sir Albert Howard, who was a, an expert in plant diseases, knighted for his services to agricultural research, was sent out by the British government to India, actually now Pakistan, northwest India, to the Hunza Valley, to teach the peasant farmers how to adopt Western methods of agriculture. And he had the enormous humility when he arrived there to realize they knew more than he did about truly sustainable farming. And his observations were based on seeing that the, the soil seemed to produce very healthy plants. They, they were sort of farming organically, although they called it that. And they were composting all their waste. He noticed that the plants, although all the diseases were there, the plants didn't seem to suffer from them. And then the animals, which of course ate the plants, they were very healthy and they didn't seem to get diseases. And finally, the people were specimens of health and vitality, lived to 100 years, were feared fighters and all the rest of it. And he concluded that there was a vital link between the health of the soil and the health of the plants, animals and people. And he spent 35 years in India, wrote a book called An Agricultural Testament when he got back, which is his homage to what he'd learned from these peasant farmers that he called his professors. And Lady Eve Balfour, niece of Prime Minister Balfour, who was involved with her sister in a farming operation in Suffolk, read the book and was so inspired that she thought it would be important to set up an organisation to promote this idea that health is not the absence of disease, it's a positive state. That was the Soil Association, founding meeting 1946, four years before I was born. Ah, cool. And the Soil Association went through a sort of development phase with all these lords and ladies and aristocrats involved. Then a bunch of hippies like me came along in the um, early 70s and kind of challenged the orthodoxy. Not that we disagreed with the views of the founders. We, we violently agreed with them, but we wanted to farm and sell our products at the marketplace. And there was a, quite a difficult period there then because we sort of took on the aging council of the soil associations it then was and by this time lady buff was in her 80s and i think she was confused by what the hell was going on but anyway long story cut short we kind of took over the management of the soil association this is by the 80s by this time and i was i was there for 20 years and i think that all our inspiration derived from lady eve herself and those people in the early 20th century who understood these links. Like, there's another man called Robert McCarrison who set up the McCarrison Society for medics who are interested in this stuff. 
And basically, they were right. And then meanwhile, agriculture was industrialized. And now we have what Howard described as a, as, as a nation of impaired physical and mental health as a result of two generations, maybe three, of eating poor food from industrial agriculture. And we realized that if you farmed in an organic way, you probably make less money than if you farmed in a conventional chemical way. So we thought, okay, we better write down what we're doing on the back of an envelope, as it virtually was then. And they became the draft of the organic standards. Now I can claim immodestly to have written the world's first draft of the organic dairy standards, because we happen to be first in the field in the Soil Association. So I spent 25 years developing the organic market. But now with climate change and everything, we can see that it's much bigger change that's needed than just an organic niche market. The whole of agriculture has got to change. So that, that's kind of partly the reason why I set up the Sustainable Food Trust. We needed to work on a broader canvas. Yeah. yeah. What, is, what is the most important thing, do you think, Patrick? Very simplistically speaking, you know, there are, there are About three About farming dozen. for health. Uh, to save the planet, stop us eroding our soil and disappearing as a, as a society. Well, people need to realise that, you know, notwithstanding David Attenborough, who I have met and admire enormously, it's not any longer about saving the rainforest and reinstating the lost biodiversity. Most of the planet is farmed, and it's been farmed in a really intensive way. So the planet now is sick because the lungs and the digestive system of the planet is its farms. The farms are sick, so the planet is sick. So we have to restore the planet to health by changing the way we farm at scale. All farmers have to do this. So we, because we are citizens who eat, need to eat in a different way, including our dogs. We have to eat the food from regenerative and sustainable and organic farming systems. Because if we all do that, the world will, will, you know, that helps the farmers go on the journey. We have got organic brands of raw dog food, we call it fresh dog food, and they use organic meats, organic vegetables. A couple of, of, of companies doing it, but they struggle to find, like they, they produce tons per day, so they, they struggle to get the amount they need. But isn't that a good thing? Because they didn't struggle too hard 10 years ago, but now the demand for their products is so high. One in five uh, British pet owners is now feeding real food to their pets, and they're struggling. But that's a good thing because it means there's going to be an organic farmer going, what, you, this guy can't produce enough uh, organic chickens. Maybe I can get in on that business. So suddenly it fuels. We're kind of hoping that we use the bits that the humans don't eat in raw dog. Food. Yeah. So, you know, tripe of the belly of the cow is, is, a, is a piece that we're happy to use, and uh, beef heart and, until, you know... Um, um, Jamie does a kind of a chef show on how to use organ meats. We use those. So we increased the... I've got to interrupt and say, we did a home kill the other day and we had visits from Neil's Yard Dairy who buy all our cheese or a lot of our cheese because we had the home kill. We thought, serve them hot. Yeah. So it was a, a male animal about a year old and we, we slow cooked the heart. It was a recipe from Darina Allen of Ballymaroo Cookery School. Absolutely delicious. No way, I've never had it. Hopefully this sector that is growing so, so quickly is creating more money uh, from the spurious bits of the cow. So suddenly the organic meat doesn't have to be this price. It might be slightly cheaper because I'm making more for my heart and tripe and, and bits and pieces. That's the dream. Uh, and But it's, it, the humans have to sign on to it as well and, and not look at food as expensive, but an investment. But the problem, of course, we have is that we, we live in such a regulated world where... 
you know, doing a home kill of an animal is barely legal. And yeah. all the small slaughterhouses that used to exist all over the country to take the animals locally and slaughter them have all gone out of business. Not all, but a lot of them have. And they're replaced by these enormous abattoirs that you couldn't possibly buy the offal from, even if you wanted to. But we need to change that. And we will change that, as we must. And it's interesting, I, I just come off a conference call with Nestle and a load of other people who talk about true cost accounting in agriculture. Mm. The senior, whatever he's called, vice president of Nestle was on the call. And I met the guy who's running the pet food company, this is a few years ago now, called Purina. And Purina are enormous pet food company. And the guy who's running it in North America, he was a really interesting guy. And he said, well, we take exactly what you just said, the drop, he called it, they call it in America, the stuff that we don't eat, and they turn it into pet food. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, they're obviously making it into a global business. But what we need is the farming systems so that the products that go into the drop are regeneratively farmed, not intensively mm. farmed, and then our pets will be healthier too. So could I ask, uh, what, what did you really find challenging? Because you set up the community farm, you know, back in the, the 70s and, and driving that, and then there must have been some real challenges at that point. You, you buy a dairy herd, you're not really buying a biodiverse type of farming. So, uh, you know, what were your real challenges at that point? Well, we went up, to the, I, somebody said you should keep Ayrshire's, not black and white Frisian cattle. Uh, and it wasn't very sort of, you know, it was just a chance meeting I had with a guy and he said, well, they, you know, they convert grass into milk. Well, they're a bit smaller. They're good, good on eating clover and grass and turning it into milk. And also they've got good milk for cheese making. The protein and fat ratio is good. So I went up to Scotland, as you do, or I did, and I found some animals. We bought 22 cows and they, one of them actually carved in the lorry on the way down. She was called Aunt Nora, uh, after my aunt. And also she was A. So we had, now we had all the cows were named uh, letters of the alphabet. And of course, needless to say, Aunt Nora got mastitis. And we didn't know what to do. So we called the vet in. And the vet said, oh, treat the quarter with antibiotics. So we duly did. And we kind of learned by, you know, we just learned through practice, to be honest. And I think um, that was a very good way to learn. But obviously, you know, it took its toll at times. And we had a really poor, run-down farm. And also, we had a very bad drive. And the vet who lived in Lampter, he, would, he refused to drive up our farm drive because it was too steep. So we had to go down with a tractor and trailer in an old Morris Miner seat tied onto the trailer and drive him up the drive. <laughs> very funny. No, and we've had a lot of vets in our time, and one of them was honest enough to say, you know, I think half the animals they've ever treated would have got, back, got better anyway. And farmers are getting so little for their animals these days that it's hard to justify paying a vet. That's wrong. You know, we, we need to, a culture of veterinary practice where we respect the knowledge that vets have, and it's a partnership. And we, it's, that's been very difficult, I think, because of what's, all the changes that have happened in agriculture. You know, you talked then earlier about, you know, uh, not um, disposing of the drop, you know, the, the, all of the, the waste, because we've now got regulations because of the huge abattoirs and how things were with how we were feeding cattle intensively. Do you see there being any change in that legislation with, you know, taking away the way we're feeding our cattle and making it more appropriate, you know, more biologically appropriate feeding? 
to our farm animals so that there's less likelihood of prion diseases, et cetera? Or do you feel that actually, no, we're stuck in this rut now and you know, that's not going to be a way forward? Well, I definitely think we're stuck in a rut and it's difficult to see a way forward. But I think we have to change it. I don't think there's any alternative. How we change it and how disruptive that will be is an open question. But um, I've just been invited by Susan Jeb, who's the newly appointed chair of the Food Standards Agency, to have a meeting with her. Her request, not mine. And so I'm just going to, I mean, I think it's a week or so's time, which is really, really interesting. And she, like all the people in the regulatory world, it's a world of fear of bacteria, isn't it? Mm. You know, it's incredible. I mean, as a nation, we have a paranoia about bacteria. And as a friend of mine, Richard Young, who also works for the Sustainable Food Trust, you know, we have a he said, we have a fear of bacteria, but it's bacteria that are going to have the last laugh, which I mm. think is rather great, actually. And all these environmental health officers, I mean, they scare the dairy farming community, especially if you're a cheesemaker. I mean, it's very interesting. If you milk cows, you're in a parlor, and, you know, the udder and the anus of a cow are quite close together. And it's the world of poo, really. You know, and it's <laughs> lovely because it smells delicious and grass and stuff. And, you know, it's just how things are if you milk cows. And then we make cheese. You go into the cheesemaking room, you put a hairnet on, you have to alcohol your hands, and people are paranoid if you possibly put your hand in the cheese bath, God forbid, and you're just milking yeah. cows. As we make a cheddar, and you put them in the cheese store, and guess what? The store is a culture of mold. Really weird. So we make a cheese which is encouraging bacterial fermentation, yeah. but in the cheese room, we have to sterilise the shit out of everything. Yeah. I, have, I have an image of you coming into the cheese room, uh, covered in poo, and taking your glasses off, just having white eyes where you're over here. You <laughs> put on your white gown and hat and make the cheese all crispy. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's gone deep, is yeah. my point. Yeah. We, we, so we have a societal fear of germs. The supermarkets and all the food companies have to practice due diligence, otherwise they'll get prosecuted. The Food Standards Agency, which I thought was a mistake when it was created, uh, is reinforcing all this legislation. Fear of regulation, you know, and over-regulation is the blight of public health. And I think the antidote to it is to de-industrialize farming, relocalize it where possible. I mean, obviously, you have to have some big systems because people live in cities these days. We have to completely change things. And yeah. it's very interesting to speculate what the route map will be. I mean, we have pandemics now. We're a nation with, you know, so few children grow up on livestock farms these days. But I've got four boys, only one of whom has ever had an antibiotic treatment. And that was only because he was at school and he had a burn or something. And children who grow up on livestock farms don't get sick. They don't get too many food allergies. It's all because we, we are, you know, we depend on the bacterial for our microbiome. And it's just gone right out of the whole ethos of society. We have to get it back again. Obviously, there's a complicated route map to do that, but I think it's no choice, really. Yeah, there's a, there's a wonderful uh, raw dog food company over in the States called Answers Pet Food. And they, the, the concept behind it is that uh, they use probiotics in their meat mix, a probiotic mix to, for the good bacteria to outcompete the bad and keep their meat clean in it industry where the meat isn't always the cleanest over in the US. 
but they got the idea from the Amish farming community. Uh, some guys yes. were standing there one day when the Amish was making he cleans down his cheese room or, and uh, he gets the whey wash and after wiping down all the machines, he starts spraying milk everywhere or the equivalent of it, whey. And, uh, and the, the guy standing beside him goes, what are you doing? You're just cleaning your machines. You're covering them in milk. And he goes, well, that's whey wash. That, that, that cleans them. And within, within five years, they had this industry of using probiotics in skyscrapers, in the ventilation systems to keep the air clean. Two hospitals in the UK did a big study uh, that washing down with probiotic wash took a couple of days to really for it to work but it outcompeted for the four of the six top hospital bugs that lay you out. Uh, it outcompeted uh, regular chemicals. So this way wash idea took off, and the guy from Manchester Petford goes, I could probably clean meat with this. So his meat gets cleaner the longer you leave it out at room temperature. I mean, wrap your head around that. Uh, so like, there is a shift happening, though. These guys are tell you, these are the two top natural... The I mean, the industry. microbiome thing, you know, it revolutionised people's understanding of, of mm. you know our relationship with bacteria and the, the whole idea that, that, you know, our own digestive system is primed at birth uh, by, you know, the anal and vaginal bacteria of the mum. And then yeah. this guy called Martin, got his name now, he, he's the medical director at NYU. He's written a book called um, Missing Microbes and they did a study Ma into... Martin Blaser, yeah. Brilliant book. And he basically mm. um, did a study on babies from cesarean births. And he found that because they didn't have the, the fingerprint primer of the bacteria of the mum, there were long-term consequences to their health. And isn't that fascinating? Yeah. And you just know intuitively that it's right. Yeah. And so we've got to really change our relationship with our farming and our food. And we've got to overcome some of these regulatory barriers. You can understand why governments have put them in place, because obviously these heavily industrialized farming systems, particularly the livestock systems, they are a breeding ground for E. coli. And if something goes wrong, it'll get to everyone's food because they're also centralized. Mm. But we have mm. to change it. Yeah. Patrick, this is fascinating stuff, but where time is short, and I want to cover as much as possible. Um, all the vegans I know are very concerned about the health of the planet and, and or their own health and they would they would suggest that animals might not be part of the answer to their health or the planet's health how do you personally um converse to those arguments i listen to heart radio when i put out the silage for our cows because in my excuse is <laughs> uh that, that the per the other person who milks the cows puts heart radio on and I don't change it, but actually I don't even want to change it because I sing along, you know, and uh, there's some real bangers on it. And anyway, basically, all yeah. the food companies now, they're all advertising for vegan foods. I mean, it's incredible. Sainsbury's, McDonald's, Aldi, they're advertising these vegan alternatives. And I think what they are doing is catering for a large number of young people who, in my view, understandably, but perhaps mistakenly, think that to go vegan is to, you know, address climate change and be part of the solution. I think a lot of those young people have a revulsion of industrial livestock farming, and rightly so. Mm. But I think their reaction, in their reaction, they are failing to differentiate between the livestock, which are part of the problem, which is the intensive pigs and chickens and mega dairy herds, and the livestock, which are emphatically part of the solution, including grass-fed and mainly grass-fed sheep and cattle. So I think it's 
really a, a symptom of amazingly poor education that mm. we got ourselves to this mess where actually all the arable farmers that have been producing plants intensively, mainly grains, which are mainly fed to animals, which is without which you wouldn't have intensive pigs and poultry. They're now mm. thinking about going regen, partly because the price of fertilizer has tripled, but they're looking at the market for red meat, beef, lamb, and they're thinking, well, why would I do that? No young people want to eat it anymore because David Attenborough says it's bad. Actually, if you eat the right meat, it's not just good, it's yeah. part of the climate change solution. Because the only way that you can switch to sustainable farming, if you're a farmer in England or Wales, is to farm with the grain of nature and give up using chemicals. And if you want to do that, then you will have to have a crop rotation or use clover in your grassland or both uh, in order to rebuild the fertility which would, would be lost when you take an arable crop out. And the only way you can turn that grass, of which there's about 60% more than that of the whole farmed area in the UK, into food that we can eat, is with ruminants. So if we uh -huh. don't eat the products from those ruminants, the farmers won't be able to transition to regenerative farming. It's, it's as big as that. Yeah. So we need a massive re-education program. Of course, intensive livestock's bad. We must understand that not all intensive, and if the farmers want to go regen, we have to support them by eating their products. Yeah, and is the education, is that what's behind the Harmony project uh, that you're doing with, through the Sustainable Food Trust? Is that about education? And, and like, how do we sort out this education issue? The Harmony project is, is a little bit, sort of, it's bigger than that in a way. It's about, it's initiated by a man called Richard Dunn, who was a, a head teacher at a, a Church of England primary school in the Thames Valley. And he read Prince Charles's Harmony book, the key message of which is nothing's separate. Everything's connected. And if you want to understand your relationship with the world, just be in nature, look at nature, not just nature. Everything in the universe is connected through common mathematical and geometric laws, which are expressed in plant growth, in animals, in our stomachs, in bacteria, everything. And if we can understand the world through the prism of interconnectedness, then we will have a better relationship with it and know what to, how to make it a better place for the future. And he's convinced that unless we put these um, dreams of thinking into our children by getting to ask good questions about sustainability, we won't have a livable planet. So I do think education is really important. And the Harmony Project is, uh, is that strand of our work. By the way, if, yeah, if anybody wants to follow the Sustainable Food Trust, we've got a website, Instagram, all that kind of stuff. And if you go to our website, you'll mm. see lots of interesting stuff. Or if you want to see what's going on my farm, we've got an Instagram called Havod Cheese, H-A-F-O-D, Cheese. And we post quite regularly, and it's just the story of our farm. And it's, you know, I, I think it's, I, I posted the day before yesterday a 16-second video of our cows chewing the cud after morning milking, all looking incredibly peaceful. Chewing the cud and the atmosphere was amazing. I'd love that. I'd love to see them on See, I can imagine that that's a new YouTube channel in its own right, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Chewing the cud. And they're all chewing in harmony. In harmony. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the regulation thing, just to come back to the regulation thing, isn't that a little bit about part of the problem where, like, Gren, let's say, wants to be an organic farmer, but like the regulation is such a pain in the, pain in the arse that it's like, I don't want to have to go for the regulation, but then I'm just not organic. 
is they're not a huge happy medium of farmers like in Ireland because they really have a problem with an arm because regulation. Hey, I want to apologise on behalf of the United Kingdom. I'd like to apologise. Yeah, take us. Which is quite a lot. Wrecking their farming. But the, national but, apology. But, the, but our Department of yeah, Agriculture yes. is very much modelled on the British Department of Agriculture. And the, but our idea of regulation is way worse than yours. It's much it's oppressive. So our farmers, good luck trying to produce organic material in, in Ireland. So like, is there not a happy medium of farmers where the problem is they don't get rewarded enough for... It's like you hear them on the radio saying, grass-fed cows are a good idea, but that there's no actual group taking that message that this guy is trying to say, which is people would say, well, you would say that because you're, you're a farmer. But like, there's no actual group grabbing the politicians. You, you mentioned some French guy in a, in a, in a blog there recently, Stéphane de Thal, and he's trying to push this 0.4%. Oh, he was the generation. French minister. French minister, was he? Okay, all right. Build the soil, wasn't that it? He, yeah, he basically, it was the COP21 in Paris, he launched this initiative called Catch for Meal, four per thousand. He set a target of farmers building 0.4% organic matter more each year in their soils. And the British government signed up to it, but of course they did absolutely nothing. Mm. And, you know, actually he was right. And so yeah. that's what we need to do, because if we, if we built, rebuilt the soil carbon that we stripped out of the soil during the intensive farming period, we would take up to... I think it's 150 parts per million, it's been estimated globally, of CO2 out of the atmosphere. And the soil is the second largest carbon bank in the world. It's the only way where we could actually re-sequester re carbon in a hurry. But the Climate Change Committee, UK Climate Change Committee, just don't get that. And I'm hoping to go and talk to them very shortly with the chair, who's called Lord Deepen, who I know, and basically get put them right on that. Yeah. But it's interesting that the... The whole thing would you say about organic regulation. It's ironic, isn't it? You try to do the right thing, they regulate you to bits and Absolutely. it costs a lot of money. But if mm. you're just doing normal farming where you're causing harm, you, you don't get anything like as much regulations. So we have to reverse that in a way. And we are yeah. trying to do something about that in the Sustainable Food Trust. We think all farmers should have an annual audit to measure the impact of their farming practice on emissions, biodiversity, animal welfare, everything. And it should be one audit for every farmer, not just in the UK, but globally. We're calling it the global farm metric. We think that ideally, the annual audit should be supported by governments, and then it could be mm -hmm. transferred onto food labelling. So you'd be able to buy from the more regenerative farmers. That's good. And then would you get some sort of reward? If you are sequestering lots of soil, well, then surely that's a carbon reduction. And if we were to reverse the whole carbon punishment, well, then maybe there's a, there's a reward system as opposed to just mm. all stick as a bit of carrot. Um, you mentioned one thing that's interesting. You said about um, in, in Egypt, they're composting everything. And so they're taking a lot of the uh, biological biomass and uh, biological waste from Cairo and using that on the field. Now, I'm mm. to believe that my, my bin here, my compost bin can be used that material, as opposed to being used as an as a energy regenerator, I don't know where it really goes, but that's what I'm hoping. Can that be spread on fields? Am I going to see paper cups rolling through the fields and think, hey, I'm growing carrots? I think composting could save the planet, actually. And uh, interesting that COP27 is going to be hosted by Egypt. And just south of Cairo, where actually my grandfather spent the whole of his working life because he worked for the Egyptian government, there's a place called Sekhem, S. 
E-K-E-M, check it out, where they have restored thousands of acres of desert just by using compost. And it's amazing what you can compost. Obviously, you don't want to compost contaminated stuff. But anything, you know, reasonably organic, including, you know, uh, green waste from households, uh, park waste, straw, I mean, just anything, literally, which has got an organic base. And you can even compost wood chip. just takes a little bit longer and a little bit more turning. And what they are doing there is they're restoring the desert. Obviously, it has to be irrigated because there's no rain out there or virtually none. So, but they find that you only need 40% of the water from the Nile in this restored compost-produced uh, soils that you do in conventional agriculture. And I'm hoping that that project will feature during COP27 because I think it's really important that more people should know about that. Biodynamic farmers they are. But they're, they're, they're really big influence in Egypt. And yeah. I think it could be the solution to desert farming. But actually, we've just started composting our own manures on our farm. And livestock farmers tend not to do that. Although, actually, do you know Ballymaloo Cookery School down in Cork? Well, they do that there. They compost their organic manure. They're doing a fantastic job there, actually. Nice. Cool. But uh, one other thing I'd like to say about, I know all the dog food that people buy has to be probably quite well heat-treated. But I don't know if you've heard of a man called Pottinger, who was an American scientist who did some experiments on cats in the 30s. And he fed the cat raw milk, pasteurized milk, sterilized milk also, and um, uh, meat as well. But anyway, the, the cats that were fed the sterilized milk died. And the cats that were fed on the pasteurized and raw milk survived and thrived. But there were differences in the litter size and the health of the the kittens, uh, between the raw milk and the pasteurized milk. In other words, raw, unprocessed food is the best food you can eat. Not, not for everything, obviously, but certainly for cats and for dogs. I'm sure that's true as well. The nutritional benefits of raw food, which basically are lost in processing. Yeah. Well, you'll be very, very pleased to hear, Patrick, <laughs> that that is exactly what we are pushing, to feed cats and dogs on raw food, species-appropriate food and nutrition density, organ meat for their health. And we're with you 100% of the way in thinking raw food uh, for, for dogs and cats especially is, is really is the future. And real food for human beings, real, real species-appropriate food for humans. Great. Yeah, yeah. Do you have to move your, your cattle through the field the same way the Kiwis do it? Is that the same idea that you're kind of, is it like a real, is there a lot of mechanization to keeping the cattle moving Right, you should be here for two and a half hours and then to this field? Or is it more, you are in that field one day and then the field the next, you know? Well, we used to just graze field by field, but actually we're adopting this system called mob grazing now. Mm. And this mm. was... Uh, the insight of, well, various people, including a man called Alan Savory, who was from Zimbabwe, he observed these herds, wild antelope, whatever, grazing in vast herds for safety and then defecating and urinating on the grass and therefore contaminating it, so they moved on, but in the meantime, trampling it. And he realised that that was soil building, and they did that because that was the way they devolved to be safe. But he, his hypothesis was that farmers should replicate this idea. And it's based on sound science, because when you defoliate a grass plant, it has a, an above and a, 
below ground root ratio. So it has a lot of biomass in its roots um, above ground. And if you just cut the hay or the grass or your lawn or whatever, you notice it grows back very quickly the next day. And that's because the plant needs to maintain this ratio. And if you turn a herd of cattle into a field, leave, it in, leave them in the field for a week, the grass keeps trying to grow back when it's eaten, but it can't because it keeps getting eaten done. So it sheds root mass. So the theory behind regenerative mm -hmm. grazing is that if you allow, if you defoliate either by cutting or grazing and then allow the grass to recover for a month, you will actually build soil as well as improve the yields. So wow. it's, I think there's a good philosophy behind that. And also I think you get more interesting, varied grasses and herbs and all the rest of it. How popular is it in, in agriculture today, the mob grazing idea? Because I don't see it happening anywhere around us. Where are you exactly? We are just outside uh, Bath. Bath. Yeah, Mm. There's a lot of farmers interested in it now, especially dairy farmers, but they come in anyway. But I think even beef and sheep farmers are realising that if you want your grass to be a carbon store, that's what you need to do. Mm. Yeah, Joel Stalatin is, is a big exponent of mob grazing, and he talks about it very eloquently in, his, in the book. Folks, this ain't normal. He's yeah. a very good yeah. So if you want a little background, he's a, a great guy we'll to share his video, Nick. Remember that yeah. video? I'll pull it up on Facebook right. after this. Just his 20 minutes explaining something. His TED Talk yeah. was just... Fabulous communicator. Yeah. yeah. I've been to his needs. farm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Polyface. Yes. Has he done a TED Talk? It's Alan, I think Alan yes, Saber has, has done, done a, done a TED, TED Talk as well. Talk. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, we'll, get, we'll get that up so that everybody can learn about these things. I think they're so, so, so important. So just in the few, last few minutes, uh, please, Patrick, um, recommended reading, recommended websites that you would suggest we, could, we and, and our, our people can go to, to to take this forward and help you to do what you do and help us to understand, uh, what would you say? Good books and good websites. Well, I've mentioned a couple already, um, An Agricultural mm -hmm. Testament by Sir Albert Howard. I mean, it is probably the greatest book on agriculture ever written. You know, it might have been written as a farmer in 1940, but it's timeless, really. He's got this amazing critique of the National Health Service. But um, well, other books, well, I, I mentioned a couple of websites that are our own, obviously, I would say that, wouldn't I? Missing Microbes, the book by Martin Blazer. Um, let's think, what else would... Well, it's Nicolette Hahn-Nyman's book, Defending Beef. That's a good book. be good to recommend that. Um, you know, my mind's gone a blank. I should, I should be able to rattle about 10 of them off. Um, what about Gabe Brown? Yes. Great book to read. That's a must-read yeah. book, yeah. And that's also, yeah, there's agree. the film. Um, what the hell is it called? The film with Gabe Brown is in. Uh, Kiss the Ground. Kiss the Ground. Uh, yeah, On Netflix. Good. That's got a lot in it. Is, is it true, uh, Patrick, that um, a huge portion of Britain is upland, cracky grass that they do very little with. And this guy was saying, we don't have trees because we allow, we allow the ruminants to run free like we do here in Ireland. We've just got deer keeping, the, keeping, the, keeping it as waste grass, essentially, uh, and keeping away all the big trees. So we don't have, you don't have forest of any mention in this upper land, but you have got this tough grass. And there's a number of ruminants that are happy to eat that. Is there not a way that you can farm the hell out of 
you know, animals like wildebeest and zebras, they live on virtual sticks sometimes. Like they have the poorest quality diet. It's not ruminants that we can just let loose in the upper lands that still have grass and, and, and you know, do something more useful with those empty patches of a couple of sheep per hectare. I think there are, and I think it's a very interesting point. I was up last night, actually, in the Cambrian Mountains above an uh, uh, amazing area of wilderness above uh, uh, Strata Florida Abbey, which is a Dershan Abbey up in Midwest Wales. It's Britain's biggest wilderness south of the Highlands and Islands, much bigger than Dartmoor. And um, there's so much grass up there, and it's been overgrazed by sheep. And I think the trick is to reintroduce a balanced system where you have some trees and you have mixed species of cattle and sheep that are capable, the breeds that are hardy enough to cope with that sort of environment, and also versions of mob grazing. I don't think you can fence everything off, but I think we need a new kind of ecologically-based farming, taking into account all the issues. And the point is that a hell of a lot of the United Kingdom is not suitable for arable cropping, um, mm. but could produce ruminant grass-fed meat of sheep and cows, and you can grow vegetables through composting and maybe polytunnels. I think there's an enormous scope for that. There's a book that hasn't yet been published, but I've read the proof of, called Gone to Seed, which is an autobiography of a man called Simon Fairley, who I heard give a talk uh, a couple of years ago. And he said, um, I, he said, I farmed 10 acres in Dorset. Not particularly good land. You know, it's a bit hilly, a bit rough, a bit this and a bit that. But he said there's millions and millions of acres of land like I farm in Dorset, which is similar to it. And he said, I've got an acre of veg, an acre of wheat, and eight acres of grass. And on that grass, I have a dairy cow and her male half, beef crossed maybe, and her heifer replacement. Milk the cow, make cheese, drink the milk, Christ. and grow the vegetables. And he's got some community, I don't know if it's a Camp Hill community or some resident community that eat all this food. And if you think about feeding Britain, there it is. You know, it's yeah. the model. And, and yeah. the reason why it's called Gondestead, I think he was, he's called Simon Fairley. He's born the same year as me. And um, apparently Timothy, he was a bit of a hippie in his time. He was, he'd got thrown out of boarding school and all that kind of thing. Basically, Tim, Tim, Timothy Leary, who was some acid guru, was... Once, yeah. once asked what had happened to all the hippies, and he said they've gone to seed. That's the, <laughs> the title. I love it. <laughs> great, Patrick. You, you, sorry, were you going to wrap it up there, Nick? I, just, I was. Okay, I was. Yeah, I just I was, want to say, want to say one more thing about man. that. Isn't it crazy that like you, we're talking about like local farming and small local farms mm -hmm. and how we need to get back to that, and yet with Brexit, Britain is turning to bloody Australian beef, which is grown in CAFOs. Oh. With Phil, don't get me going. And you want to bring that in? Think of the carbon footprint of that crap. We How need a, we need a trade deal which restricts international trade only to regeneratively grown products. Yeah, and yeah. it's crazy the government did the Australian and the New Zealand trade deals. It's a scandal. Yeah, crazy. Mm. We have it as well. We got we got New Zealand. Let, New just Zealand make sure you don't get Liz Trust for the next prime minister. He's <laughs> a free trader. <laughs> there you go. There you go. No more Liz. Can we feed the world? Using this micro farm uh, and, and and mixed farm model, yeah, we'd have to eat differently and waste less food. We waste nearly fifty percent of the food, you know, a bit on the farm and off the farm. So, and we have to stop eating cheap chicken altogether. Sorry, guys, no more cheap chicken. 
or mega dairies and cows that never get out to grass, more yeah. vegetables. Um, and if we went regenerative nationwide, grain production would halve. That's okay because half the grain is currently fed to these hapless animals in sheds. So we just yeah. won't have them anymore. And chicken will be yeah. expensive and a treat like it was when I was Feed growing up. It's a Sunday thing that you get. Yeah, exactly. We right. could feed ourselves and have no less self-sufficiency than we have today in our staples if we did it that way. And a lot more people employed doing meaningful work that they love and care about. I read, I read stories about farms to my kid, but we stop reading those stories at nine or ten when they start realising that that pack of rashers is actually the pig that you sleep with at night time in the teddy. So, like, it's, it's ridiculous. We know these things make us happy. This is meaningful work. Mm. We have, what, is my, what, is my, what is my point on the earth? You know, these questions we ask ourselves, bloody ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. meaningful physical work is at such a premium today, and that's what farming, proper farming is. It's amazing. Mm. You yeah. feel so, your thoughts come better when you're working. The human body was designed to work physically, and now mm. we all have to go down to the gym or something because we, we don't have enough of it. So, yeah. yeah, a lot more people would work on the land, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah. Uh, guys, uh, just before we wrap up, thanks very much, everyone, for listening. Uh, thank you so much, Patrick. Nick's going to wrap this up again, but I wanted to direct people to our Patreon, uh, Patreon page, forward slash Raw Pet Medics. Uh, it, guys, if you can visit it, it's great. That's what keeps us going and getting uh, people in like Patrick and helping us prepare for these shows. It's patreon.com forward slash Raw Pet Medics. But, Nick, you probably wanted to wrap it up, so I just want to say, Patrick, Pleasure meeting you. You've given me so many yeah. ideas, but a uh, brilliant chat. I could have done another hour of that, no problem. But uh, I know, Nick, you've been a huge fan for, for years, so it must be a... You live uh, in I live, Ireland. I live in Ireland. Where? I live in Wicklow. 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 Uh, yeah, Great. Wicklow, Dublin. Yeah. I, I, I went to a conference in the Wicklow Mountains, Glen Free Centre of Peace oh, and yeah. Reconciliation. Very nice spot. Yeah, that's a, very, that's a very zen spot. You're a bit of a hippie, Patrick, I think, underneath it all, are you? I'm more than a bit of a hippie. <laughs> <laughs> You've been absolutely fantastic. Uh, well, we have high expectations and you've surpassed them all. We would love to get you on in a year's time just to see how the lay of the land is then. Um, your optimism and your knowledge is inspiring. I feel, I feel in, so much happier than I did at the beginning of the show. Thank you so much. Um, is, is there a final message you'd like to share? Wow. You can say no. <laughs> We're all connected, aren't we? You know, it's, I think each human being is, you know, we're the cells of humanity and the humanity is a giant organism or the food system is a giant organism. The farms are the cells and we are the cells. And if we can restore ourselves to health, physical and mental, then we can create a healthy planet together. And I think all the knowledge that we need is contained in our own experience in our own bodies we don't need to look any further wonderful God. thank you so yeah. much yeah. for sharing your knowledge and 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 everything that you've learned over the years thank you uh, to the guys um it's been a great show i'm going to yeah. be thinking about this please guys come back and uh, ask plenty of questions so uh exactly. next next week is q a to the people that were listening there was we will be answering some of those next week. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for absolutely watching. Absolutely. Thank you, Patrick. Here we all go. Great. Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay, bye. Bye. Great stuff. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>